The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good to see you. We're here to worship the Lord Jesus Christ uh, at the Lord's table service this morning. Glad that you're joining us for that. Um, the elements are as they have been the prepackaged elements on the table in the back. So we're going to take just a moment before we get started to let you grab uh, one of those and uh, or grab a handful for your family. And John Postiff, would you grab one for me as well? Thank you. I forgot to grab one on the way by. We're going to go right into the message uh, this morning. If you remember back in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, we're going to be in later in verses 4 through 11 this morning, but in verse number 3 of that particular chapter last week, we ended on the uh, notion of confession that Jesus is Lord. Confessing that Jesus is Lord. Remember, the Scripture says that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And we talked last time about how you know the nature of a spirit by its fruit. By its fruit. You will know them by their fruit. Um, So the point is that people who truly confess Jesus as Lord must be doing so by the power of the Spirit. Such a confession of Christ as Lord is not acceptable to a person who is uh, an unbeliever. Uh, That is a person who does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them and thus ministering to them, illuminating them, saving them, and sanctifying them. So what I want to talk about this morning is when you say, when you confess, when you profess, when you claim onto that statement that Jesus is Lord, what do you mean by that? I had that question actually at the door last week. What exactly does that mean? Now these notes are not, or this, this sermon rather, my notes here and the sermon derived from it, are, is not intended to be a, some kind of discourse on lordship salvation as such. Okay, That's an issue for another time that we have dealt with uh, in various forums and ways. Um, and if you don't know what lordship salvation is, just don't worry your, your mind about that. Just set it aside for now and say it's something to look into later. We're not, I'm not trying to deal with that. Um, know that a confession that you believe and acknowledge Christ as Lord is of the essence of the entrance into the Christian faith. Romans 10, 9 and 10 tell us that, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's very clear. You cannot have salvation without an acknowledgement, a hearty, wholehearted acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. Now, we also confess, obviously, Jesus as Savior, don't we? That, that word describes Jesus as one who rescues us from sin and death. He's our rescuer, our Savior. But we also confess Jesus as Christ, right? In fact, we call Him the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, And uh, we call Him our Savior. So, those words all have meaning. They're all very important. Savior, how He rescues us. Christ, that He's Messiah or anointed of God. Christ is just the Greek word, a transliteration of the Greek word from Hebrew, talking about Messiah or anointed one. 
That means He's the chosen servant of God to save and rule His people. But we want to look at the word Lord this morning, not so much Savior, not so much Christ, uh, or even Jesus, His personal name. So let's look at Jesus is Lord both in belief and then briefly in practice. Okay, Belief or knowledge, if you will, and then in practice. So what I want to do in the first segment of this message is get across exactly what it is that Lord means and how you truly know that information. I'm saying these things so that your mind can be informed and your affections and volition can be impacted. You need to have this true knowledge and belief in Jesus as Lord. Now when I say that, I'm emphasizing the idea of true knowledge. I would never tell somebody to make a confession in Christ or in the Lord Jesus Christ without them understanding what they're saying. Okay? If you do that, that's, a, that's an empty, rote profession. It means nothing. You can get somebody to repeat after me the sinner's prayer, for example. It doesn't mean anything to them unless they understand all the elements of that prayer. That they are a sinful person and that sin offends a holy God and that sin has a penalty of death and that Jesus has come to rescue them from sin and that He died for their sins and that He rose again from the dead. Do you really believe that or are you just mouthing it? And here the same. If you get somebody to say Jesus is Lord, that could be just as so many words, so much hot air, so many syllables, but it means nothing in their hearts. So I would never ask somebody to make a confession that they do not understand. It's kind of like asking somebody to sign a contract and then find out what's in the contract after they sign it. Kind of like passing a law before you read it so then you can find out what's in it afterwards. We've heard that kind of nonsense before. No Christian teacher should ever ask someone to say something or confess something they do not understand. This is the thing about confessing faith in the Lord Jesus. It's not a rote memorized answer to a catechism question. Uh, it's, not, it's not mere regurgitation. You've heard that before in school, right? Regurgitate the information on the test. Well, that's a very distasteful kind of metaphor, isn't it? Uh, in, in fact, it, t- it tells us you know, if, if you're regurgitating it, you probably haven't digested it too well. So... Um, it's not knowledge. It's not in school. It doesn't count as knowledge in school. It doesn't count regarding the Lord Jesus. True faith entails an inner voluntary acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord and an agreement to the implications that that has for our lives. The truth of His identity does have some implication for our life. So, Lord is a title. It cannot be divorced from His other titles. In other words, if your Savior from sin is not also the Lord Jesus, then I'll ask it and I'll put it in the form of a question. If you have a Savior who is not the Lord Jesus, do you really have salvation? No. Jesus is not sometimes the Messiah and sometimes the Savior and other times the Lord depending on whatever your fancy is at the moment. He is all of those titles, Christ, Savior, and Lord, all the time, without division, simultaneously. 
That's the that's the what I'm trying to get at there is the shortcoming of people who say, "Well, I received Jesus as Savior, but mm, not as Lord." Now, if you don't have the Lord Jesus, then you don't have any Jesus. You don't have the real Jesus. That's for sure. Now, I'm going to uh, just touch on a few texts in the New Testament. I uh, <laughs> I uh, began the study, and I thought, well, I'll look at these uses of the word Lord in the New Testament, and. Uh, Somewhat to my, to, my, to my horror, I found there were over 600 uses of it in the New Testament. So uh, I, I will freely admit I did not read through every single one of them for this study. Uh, it's just so much. Uh, you know, it, and it shows the folly of trying to take Lord out of the equation of salvation. I mean, uh, so the confession of Jesus as Lord is so crucial and central to the Christian faith. Uh, over 600 uses. Uh, the New Testament is written in Greek in the first century. The, the use of the word Lord in the New Testament, at least as we've received it uh, in, in order, starting in the book of Matthew, tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. Kind of appropriate for this season of the year, isn't it? An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream. And this is a reference to God. Uh, a reference to God. An angel from God appeared to Joseph. And then it says in chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 22, there's a quotation of Isaiah 14. And it talks about the Lord said, the Lord promised that a virgin should be with child. This is a reference to God Himself. Okay, so we have an angel from God called the angel of the Lord. And we have the Lord speaking in Isaiah 7:14 through Isaiah to Ahaz, giving this promise of the virgin birth. And so we can say with confidence that the word Lord has a divine meaning. A divine meaning. In other words, Lord is a reference to God, to deity. Now, I, when I use, uh, when I say it's a uh, reference to a divine meaning here, I mean, I do mean deity. Some of you might be thinking of that. Some have made this kind of distinction between divine and deity, like, the Westminster divines wrote the Westminster Confession. Divines, that means like pastors. Okay, I don't like using that word to refer to humans, but it's commonly used in reform circles to refer to those type, that type of person. Um, in the context I use the word divine, I'm not using it of mortal humans at all. Okay, so it's a divine meaning, the Lord. So when you say, when you say Jesus is Lord... You're not saying like in the New Testament, sometimes the word Lord is used in, a, in an honorific way, like sir, you know, uh, it's a, it's a high title of respect. Uh, sometimes that's probably the case in the New Testament. But here we're talking about Lord not in just a, a mere human honoring sense. It is the divine sense of the word. It refers to deity. So when you say Jesus is Lord, you're saying something. You're saying something. You're saying that He is so closely connected to God that He is, in fact, one with God. Now, what about the first time the word Lord is used in, in the chronological sense? So we looked at, just look at the New Testament, first use of the word Lord, book of Matthew. But the book of Matthew is not the first book written in the New Testament. Did you know that? It's the first in the order we've received, but it's not probably the first written in chronology. That title 
probably goes to uh, oh another book, uh, maybe the book of James, or um, it could be First and Second Thessalonians, maybe, but I think James probably a good a good uh, a good one. Well, so so think about this. James writes to his church people, and he says to them, and I'll give you just quickly, these are, this is too fast, you, you don't even have to write these down, but he calls the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, I'm his servant, in chapter 1 and verse 1 of the book of James. He says, Jesus is involved in dispensing answers to prayer, prayers for wisdom, the Lord will not upbraid you for that, the Lord promises the crown of life to those who love him, the Lord Jesus is glorious Chapter two, verse one. Don't you know the, the faith of our Lord Jesus, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Um, chapter three, verse nine talks about we bless the Lord with our tongue, along with blessing God the Father. And then what do we do with our tongue? We turn around and we curse people. Uh, we're only halfway through the uses here. We're told to humble ourselves before the Lord. I think when James writes Lord, see, it's easy for us to. We kind of fall into a pattern. We, we start to see Lord in James or in many books in the Bible. And who do we think of immediately? God the Father, probably. But he introduced the book by saying he's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So why would you take Lord Jesus in verse 1 and then use every other reference to the word Lord to refer to God the Father if it refers to the Lord at the beginning of the book? Okay, So the Lord Jesus the Lord Jesus in these books. The Lord is above us. We are beneath Him. Humble yourselves under His mighty hand. It is the Lord's will if you're going to do such and such and go here and there and gain a profit and move to this city and do that business and all of that. That's why you, you, you want to make sure you have in your, you know, factored into your calendar DV, Deo Valente, Lord willing. Is if God wills, then we'll do this or that. It says in chapter 5, the Lord is coming back. Be patient until the coming of the Lord, it says. The prophet spoke in the name of the Lord, James says. The Lord is full of compassion and merciful. The Lord is the one to whom we pray. We anoint the sick in the name of the Lord. And the Lord raises up the sick if it's His pleasure to do so. So here the word Lord describes Jesus who does just what God the Father does. John chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus said, My Father is working and I also am working. So what the Father does, the Son also does. The Lord, Jesus. That's what it means when you confess Jesus as Lord. Now, specifically back in Matthew again, chapter number 3, uh, the Bible uses the word Lord of Jesus for the first time. And it does it this way. In Matthew 3.3, 3, John the Baptist is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what is he saying? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But he says that he is the one crying in the wilderness to make straight the ways of the Lord. And then... Somebody comes to him, of whom he says in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in chapter 3 of Matthew, verse number 13, he gets baptized. And then 
uses or quotes from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse number 3. Let's, let me just go back there, Isaiah 40 and verse number 3. It says these words. The voice, that's the one right there. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Adonai, which a Jewish person would say, but it's of the Lord. It's of Jehovah, God. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Um, Just a note on that word, by the way. That's from the Hebrew, Yahweh. We don't often, I don't often say that word, uh, that, that personal name of God. Some have a problem with that one way or the other, saying it or not saying it. But the word Jehovah that I used earlier comes from using the vowels of that word, Yahweh, and sticking the vowels of Adonai in there and making it into an English word, Jehovah. So it is the personal name of God, although uh, because the original name was written without Uh, Vowels. I don't know if you knew that, but there were no vowel markings or vowel letters in the original Hebrew. Those uh, markings, points, uh, and uh, markings above and below letters were inserted by later scribes to help them remember how to pronounce the words and to promote a standard pronunciation of the words. So you can imagine if I had all my notes here and I just did a search replace and deleted all the vowels, that's what it would kind of look like. It might be a little hard to decipher at times, but... That's the word Lord from the Old Testament which is brought forward into the New Testament in the book of Matthew where I was mentioning in chapter 3 and it refers to uh, the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 and uh, verse number 3. John is coming preparing the way of the Lord and who is that that he's preparing for? Well, it's Jesus. So not only does the Lord, the word Lord have a divine meaning Follow me now. I know I may be going a long way around this, but I'm trying to prove my case. It not only has a divine meaning, it has a divine meaning specifically applied to Jesus. So you're saying Jesus is Lord is an important statement. It's an important statement. It does distinguish you, doesn't it, from a, a modern Jewish person today? Would they ever say that? Never, unless they come to faith in Christ then they would understand that their God, whom they were to, to worship from ancient times, is the triune God described in Scripture. What's his name? And what's his son's name? If you know. Yeah, it's the Messiah. The Lord then is the same one as identified by Peter as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16. Remember that confession of Christ? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter would have no trouble calling him Lord. And then in Acts 26.15, is a record of Paul when he's on the road to Damascus. And remember, he's blinded by that light and he says, Who are you, Lord? And what did the Bible say? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord responds, I'm Jesus. I'm the Lord. The one you're persecuting when you persecute the church. The Lord, the divine Jesus. Finally, let me just wrap this all together. Here's a definition of the word Lord. It means, now this is kind of a more generic definition, but it applies to Christ. It means a person who is an owner or a master of property. It refers to one who has authority over other persons. So it could be 
the Lord of the vineyard, that's the owner of the property, the vineyard and its operations, or it could be the Lord of the house, meaning the Lord of the household. He's the boss. He's the head of the house over the persons. It is a personal title for God and for Jesus because they inherently possess that ownership and authority. What do you see here that is owned by somebody other than God? Nothing. Everything here is God's. You are. These chairs are. This church building is. The earth upon which the church sits is. The solar system in which the earth moves. The Milky Way galaxy, the universe, all the other galaxies, the billions of stars, all belong to God. He is the master of them. He's the owner of that property and to Jesus who shares exactly in that ownership. And after all, and that ownership implies authority, doesn't it? If you own it, you can do with it what is legal and right to do with it, right? Well, remember what Jesus said about authority? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, he said. Listen to that authority. So in any realm, in our realm, but in any realm, there can only be one Lord. Since the realm over which the Lord reigns is universal, there is only one Lord Jesus Christ. There is one God and Father and one Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 6. My friends, that's what it means when we say Jesus is Lord. He's the owner, the master, the director, the boss. He has authority over persons. He's divine. That divine title applies to Jesus. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the whole earth. He is the Lord of the angelic hosts. He is the Lord of Sabaoth. And Acts chapter 10 and verse number 36 says, He is Lord of all. All things and all people. To Him belongs the entire universe because He made it and He holds it together. Colossians 1.17 So does that help you understand in your mind what it means that Jesus is Lord? A divine title directly applied to Jesus. He's the Lord. All those things that James told us. He is the owner, the master, uh, the authority over all those things. So when you say Jesus is Lord, that's what you're meaning. And maybe this has helped you understand it another little step further than what you did before. Now, in practice, that's Jesus as Lord in belief. And our time is fleeting this morning, but... Let me just briefly talk about what does it mean Jesus is Lord in practice. True belief is never dissociated from practice, is it? For a belief to be held truly, it must apply to life. It must be operational. It must create change. It must have implications, actions, new attitudes. If, if, if you say, I believe X and X has nothing to do with your life, then I can pretty much prove that you don't believe X. You know, if you believe, I believe X, but you, you, you live as if X is not true, then I can tell you what you really believe. In other words, you're regurgitating the Sunday school answer 
but you're not living the Sunday school answer. See, so true belief has to be operational. It has to have implications. It creates change, transformation, new new thinking, new ways of doing things. So here's a, a few ideas. Those who confess Jesus as Lord obey what He tells them to do. Luke 6.46 says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Jesus told the disciples in John 13, you know, you call me teacher, master, and rabbi, you know, and Lord, and, and you, you know, you're saying well because I am. But look what I've done to you. Remember what he did in John 13? Got on his hands and knees probably and washed their feet. Dried them with the towel with which he was girded at the table. And he said, I've given you an example, so as I've done to you, do to each other. That's an example of what it means to do what he says. Then those who confess Jesus as Lord honor and respect him as God. Malachi 1.6 says this, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you. If Jesus is Lord, then where is His respect as Lord? We need to respect Him as He is. So, if you confess Jesus as Lord, you obey what He does. You respect Him as God. Number three, if Jesus is your Lord, if you really make that confession, that means you humble yourself in your own estimation. Humble yourself in your own estimation. If you're saying Jesus is Lord, that has an implication for what I am. You with me? Okay. If He's there, where's here? Well, here is not there. <laughs> That's how Chuck Allen tells us to remember. How do you know that you're not... How, do you, how does he say it? How do you know you're not there? Because I'm here. That's why. I'm not there. I'm not Lord. He is Lord. I'm a person. I'm a mere mortal. I'm a mere man. I'm a servant of God. I'm an unprofitable servant at that. And so, we humble ourselves in our own estimation. We're not such hot stuff as we... Our default is to think that we're pretty important in the world. You know, the world does revolve around me, doesn't it? Oh, that's worse than a geocentric view of the universe. (laughs) That's a me-centric view of the universe. No, Jesus is Lord. I'm not. Number four, Jesus as Lord means that you encourage people not to use the name of the Lord in vain. If you hear His name in vain, it would probably do them good for you to remind them. You say, well, He is Lord, you know. Remember that. He is going to be judge. Remember that. He tells us not to use His name in vain. Remember that. And maybe you'll have a little, a little impact on their Life, just however little it may be, because you've made a profession that Jesus is Lord and it's, it's impacted your conduct before them. Number five, Jesus as Lord means that we extol Him before others and worship Him in the way that He appoints for us to do. So I'm going back in my mind and thinking of that Leviticus 10 passage where Nadab and Abihu offered you know, unauthorized fire before the Lord. They didn't respect God. They didn't respect His commands. And God 
he, he said, you know, basically, now we're not going to start doing that. So he just, he just fired them. Okay? Pun intended. All right? Uh, yeah, I said, we're not going to go there. It's like Ananias and Sapphira we talked about on Thursday night. The beginning of the church, they lie about an offering they've made, and so it's getting into you know financial fraud and lying about money in the church and misleading. And God says, we're not even going to go there. We'll just knock it off right now. And Ananias and Sapphira are dispatched, and they're out. And that caused the church to fear uh, what God would do if they also walked amiss in that way. And then finally, Jesus as Lord means that He is your King and your Master. Because He is King of everything. He's going to set His throne in Jerusalem and reign over the world. And you can therefore, because He is Lord, trust Him. He has everything under His authority. Everything under His control. There's nothing that is outside of His purview. Every trial, every difficulty, every, every, everything that, a, that the devil might want to do to somebody all has to pass through His permission. If they don't have God's permission, Christ's permission, then it can't happen. So, Jesus as Lord in belief and also in practice. Now, Jesus is Lord for all of us, whether you believe it or not. But now at least you know what it means. And I trust that whatever it implies for your life, you will live. So, this Jesus, this Lord, is the one to whom we come to the table this day. And we do so to honor Him in the appointed way that He has given to us, as we talked about in 1 Corinthians 11. And since He's commanded, we do, right? He's told us, so we obey. So let's uh, just have a moment of quiet, and we'll pray and think about partaking of the table. I'll have a couple of brothers um, just prepare your hearts to pray for the bread and the cup, and then we will partake of those uh, this morning. So let's just take a minute, have some quiet. We will uh, bid uh, good morning to those that are on the live stream at this point. Then we'll come back at 1045 for our morning worship service for you on the, on the computer. Okay, let's pray.